Good evening. If you have your Bibles, uh, please open them up to Zechariah chapter 3. I wanted this week, as we were thinking about the work of Christ on our behalf, I wanted us to look at this from the perspective, uh, through the lens of the Old Testament. Early Christians, as they would, if, if you go, if you were to come back to my office and pull down some of the texts and, and sermons from Christians in the first few centuries, one of the things that you'll find is that when they reflected deeply upon the work of Jesus, it was most often the passages in the Old Testament that they turned to. And you and I, we tend to do the opposite. We tend to fly most comfortably, find ourselves most at home in the New Testament, and for good reason. But I thought this week, as we looked at Exodus chapter 12 this past Sunday, and I thought today we would look at the work of Jesus in his death from another passage of Scripture that we may never have made the connection between what is happening here to what is happening with Christ, what we find in this chapter is massively important, not just in its way that it relates to Jesus, but in the way that it connects through Christ to us. It, it, it tells us something massively important. We just sang those song, that, this song, His Robes for Mine. And the hope that we have as Christians is that the, the robe that we have, it's a picture that we are given, that a picture that is lifted, it begins to form from this passage, the picture that we are clothed in a righteousness that is not ours. It is external to us. It is something that is given to us. It is the righteousness of Christ. And it is this passage that actually begins to form the poetic background for that song. And it, the the climax of this passage really is found in the book of Revelation where we find the saints of God who are dressed in pure white. Robes that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. But this passage is beautiful. The book of Zechariah is a, is a wonderful text where the Lord is confronting His people but also comforting His people. In, there are... Zechariah is writing to... The people of God, the Old Testament people of God, the people of Israel, as they have returned from exile, you will remember that they were, because of their sin, God had sent them into exile. That is, he had brought another country to conquer them, and that country's practice, by the mercy of God, was not to simply destroy and kill everyone, but was to take away the people and to bring people from other nations to live in Israel. So what ends up happening, these people, after a period of time of 70 years, they are permitted to return. And as they return, the prophets again return with them and start prophesying to them what God has for them. Particularly, he speaks to them, Zechariah's message is one of a call to repentance. Because as he is going to tell them, the same things that, you, that brought Israel or that caused Israel to be taken into exile as a punishment of God, those same things that they were doing then, we are doing now. We must repent. We must stop. But the other part he's doing is he's calling them to commit their way to the Lord. But there is something else. In, in weaving through all of this, Zechariah 
on behalf of the Lord, communicates a message of comfort. That the Lord, despite all appearances, what Israel once was, the glory had passed. Its its greatness had passed. Its strength had passed. They looked at the the stones and the landmarks that, that stood as mere remnants and memories of what had once been. The glory of Israel, the glory of God, it all seemed like a story that you simply tell your children and that they tell their children, but has no bearing in reality. And the Lord, through his prophets and through Zechariah in particular, is reminding them that he is with them and that he will strengthen them. That he will himself restore them to the land and and the land to them. That he will, in fact, keep all of his promises. And all of Zechariah's message, especially the first half, centers around two individuals. Zerubbabel is addressed in chapter 4, but even chiefly before Zerubbabel is this man named Joshua. Not the Joshua that we know led the people of Israel uh, into the promised land. Different Joshua, just like there are many Johns, or in our church, many Marks. Uh, There were many Joshuas. It was a common name. And Joshua, we are told in verse 1, then he showed me Joshua the high priest. Joshua is the high priest who was at this time there in the land with the people of Israel. But there is an insurmountable problem that he faces. We see this. As a high priest, the the role of the priest, the high priest in particular, was that he he was the representative of God to the people and of the people to God. He was an intermediary. He was the go-between. It was him who, on the Day of Atonement, that one day a year, that one hour, he was allowed to go into the most holy of place, the holy of holies, to the inner sanctum of the temple, and to go where no one else was allowed to go that entire year. And he was able to make atonement for the people so that God would still dwell with his people. It was through him that... That the presence of God remained in the land. He had enormous responsibility and yet also enormous privilege. And he interceded for the people of God to, to make the people of God, to make Israel acceptable to the Lord. And he represented them and he represented the Lord to them. He, in his robe, his attire, he had, he had a special breast piece hanging over his chest and it had on it inscribed each of the names of the tribes of the of Israel on each shoulder he had a a special uh, specially designed piece of clothing and six names of the children of Israel were on this shoulder and another six were on the other shoulder He literally bore the people of Israel symbolically bore the people of Israel into the presence of God. And he bore the presence of God into the, in front of the people of Israel. On his head, he wore a turban. And there was a gold piece that was affixed to that turban. And on that gold piece, it read, Holy to the Lord. And yet what we find is that this high priest, despite his position, despite his responsibility, 
despite the fact that he is a representative of God to the people and of the people to the Lord. We find him in verse 1 in a scene like a courtroom. Then Joshua, then, then he, the Lord showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and that is the Lord, and, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Do you see the image laid out? There is a room, it's, it's God, it's, he is in front, he is going to judge, and Joshua is standing there, and Satan ready to accuse We find Joshua's condition to be, to be terrible. We see that in verse 3. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Clothed with filthy garments. The word filthy is connected to that Hebrew word for excrement. Joshua is unfit to be in the presence of God. Unfit to serve God. Unfit to mediate for the people. Unfit to make the people of accept, the, acceptable to God through sacrifice. He is unfit for this role. And it's not merely that he has done wrong. He has made some mistakes. The, the issue, the picture here is not of many sins or some mistakes that he has made. The, the, the picture is one that there is an underlying condition of filthiness. There is an underlying moral condition. And this is actually why in this passage, it may be why in this passage, Satan, while he's standing at his right hand to accuse him, he's not actually recorded as having to say anything because Joshua's clothing are making the case for him. He's like, what, what do I need to say? Look at him. He's filthy. He can't be here. It would be like a murderer showing up for the trial, his hands still bloodied. What do I need to say? Look at him. The DNA is still in his hands. Do you see how hopeless this leaves? Not just Joshua. This leaves everyone. I mean, all the people of God find themselves condemned with Joshua because if Joshua falls, they all fall. No one can have hope to have the Lord be at peace with them, that they can be atonement between man and God if the one who makes that atonement is unfit to be in the presence of God. And yet we have this astonishing reversal. Verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire, a branch plucked from the fire? The, the picture is that Joshua is like a branch that has... It, this week, one evening, we were making a fire in our backyard. And uh, as we were doing that, you know, we're heaping sticks in... And my boys, you know, would pull one out if they saw a stick they liked. And that's the picture here. He's, the Lord is, jo Joshua is thrown into the fire, yet the Lord is saving him out of it. The judgment is there, he deserves it, but God rescues him out of it. And the reason for God's rescue, do you see it? It's not because Joshua's position, it's not because of how great he is, it's not because of what the Lord intends to do through him in the future. It has everything to do with his electing grace. 
O Satan, uh, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. God is going to have mercy on Joshua because he has chosen his people. He has chosen Israel. This is a, a, an astonishing reversal here. In verse, and it raises a, a big question. How can a righteous God be righteous and not condemn Joshua? Joshua's attire is filthy. And kids, we have kids here. Some of you have had spring break. Some of you, spring break is coming. But let's say tomorrow, it's Saturday. You go outside. It's a little rainy, but you go playing anyway. You get, like my boys sometimes get, you get terrifically muddy, all right? If you come to the house drenched, mud all over you, and you start walking through the house, what will your mom and dad's reaction be? Just picture that for a moment, right? Is it, oh, that's fine? I don't know. My, my parents' reaction was not tame, right? It, it's not calm voice time. It's, it's what are you crazy? What, what are you doing walking through? My mom, you're walking through my kitchen? You learn very quickly. You, you, take all the mud, you get rid of all the mud as much as you can before you come inside. Would your parents allow you to come to church like that, wearing those same muddy clothes Sunday morning? What, what would you think if I came here Sunday morning, clothes caked in mud? Now, you might think something terrible has happened. Or you might think, man, laundry just has piled up at the Harris house. But there would be something wrong. How can a holy God let someone who is stained with sin and guilt act as high priest? And the short answer is he can't. Not if he's going to be righteous, right? If God is righteous, he can't let sin go unpunished, undealt with. God has got to deal with the filthy clothes of Joshua. And we find that he does. Verse 4. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, they, he said, behold. So here's the command for those around him. Remove his filthy garments. All right, so that's, that's step one. Get rid of the filthy garments. We're sitting, he tells Joshua, behold, I have taken away, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I... So, so that's step one, all right? I have taken away. Joshua here, he does not assist in any way. He is not doing anything. God is the one who does it all. He is the one who takes his clothes. He is the one who removes the iniquity. He is the one who takes care of all of that. And, then to, and it's not enough for Joshua, the high priest, merely to be absent of guilt. We can't come in the presence of a righteous God without righteousness, without purity, right? It's not enough... To be naked, he needs to be clothed. And so God does that. Behold, Joshua, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. 
And I said, this is now Zechariah. Zechariah chimes in. He maybe notices it's not complete. And he says, hey, and he, let them put a clean turban on his head. Somehow the turban gets missed. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Joshua is cleaned. He's cleaned quickly. He's cleaned thoroughly. He is, his guilt, his sin, all of it is, is taken from him. But this, this leads us to, again to another problem. If, if this is a courtroom, remember it's a courtroom setting? I know it, it goes from courtroom setting to like fashion room setting. So like it's, it's, it's all combined. But it's a courtroom setting. Here, verse 1, he, he's in a courtroom. How can the judge be righteous? What kind of judge acknowledges sin and proper judgment, but then refuses to allow the case to go forward? Again, that, that, it compromises the very righteousness of God to do this. How can it be right for God to simply remove someone's guilt and make them pure, announce them righteous, grant them righteousness? It, it seems almost as if God is simply sweeping Joshua's filthy garments under the cosmic bed, so to speak. Pushing them farther and farther back. How can God justify the justification of sinners? That's the key point. That's the problem here. The text doesn't stop there. It goes on in verses 8. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you. And here, commentators are split exactly what he's talking about. Whether these, most seem to think that these are the priests that are also serving alongside and under and with Joshua. As if now all of, all of the priesthood is in view. For they are men who are assigned so that these priests, they themselves, they are a picture of someone. Behold, who is this someone? Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Here are, are two titles that have been used throughout the Old Testament to describe the coming Messiah. The first one is my servant. We find that especially in the second half of the book of Isaiah. There is this reference again and again to the servant of God, my servant, the servant. He is going to come and he is going to reign and he is going to, he is going to take away the guilt of the people of God. And how is he going to do it? 52 and 53 tell us he's going to do that not by causing his enemies to suffer but by suffering himself. And not only is he a servant, the suffering servant, he is also the branch. This, this one, this picture, this image is one that has arisen through the Old Testament. It, it pictures this cut-off trunk, this stump of, 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 of David's line from which a branch is going to spring. New life is going to arise up. A king is going to reign. And here we have one who is going to come, is going to reign, one who is going to come, who is going to save through suffering. How is God just? Well, he will do it through the servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, 
on a single stone with seven eyes. And it could be that word eyes there. It could be, he could be using an image of some kind. This is an all-knowing stone. Uh, that same word for eyes could be translated facets. And so it could be pictured rather than a gold plate above uh, the, on the turban saying holy to the Lord. Well now in its place or in addition to it, there is a, there is a stone of seven facets that is there. And on it we, we find this written, engraven on it. I will engrave its inscription declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. The picture here, he is speaking of that day, that day, that single day that we celebrate today, that we remember today with both gravity and gladness the day that Christ died in which all the guilt of God's people is removed. Christ, the Son of God, was crushed in the stead of sinful men so that God is righteous even as he righteouses or declares sinners to be righteous. And verse 10 pictures that so great, so vast will be the work of this one who saves that it will cause all who believe in Christ, all who are, who are blessed in this one, who are rescued by this one, all whose iniquity has been removed, their pros our prosperity will be so great that we'll invite others to come, join us under this fig tree, eat of this fruit. We'll invite our neighbors to come. This branch will save. God will save and he will do it through this branch. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. The whole vision of Zechariah here is, is pointing us and is hinging upon the work of Christ. In Zechariah's day, it's long in the future. In our day, long in the past. The work of Jesus on what we now call Good Friday was the most climactic work ever accomplished, the most important day known in human history. All of history turns upon it. Everything is pointing to it and pointing back to it. And so we can sing his robes for mine. And so we are made, if we have trusted in Christ, we are made righteous in the sight of God. Friend, if you, young men, young women, if you have never trusted in Christ, there is no hope for you before God outside of Jesus. Do you notice the way God, what God does here? He says, I will save. This isn't something you do. It isn't something Joshua could add to, nor is it anything you and I can add to. God doesn't do it because Joshua is somehow going to be important or is going to serve in a particular way. 
It is done because of grace, by God's grace. And so if you come, if you want to taste of the mercy of God, you will do so only by the grace of God. You must lean hard on Jesus as your Savior. For it is only in Him that God saves. There is no other name given among men whereby we may be saved, whereby we as sinners may be saved. But there are three things I just want us to point to. The first is this, that if this is true, and it absolutely is, that Christ died in our stead and that we have His righteousness credited to our account... Three things that, there, there are many things true. Let me just give us three. The first is that we no longer need to pretend. We are sinners. All of us. We are unclean. Each of us. We are unfit to serve God. Every last one of us. Indeed, before we can ever come to the Lord or we can ever hope to be rescued and redeemed by Him, we must recognize this truth. Jesus tells us He came not to serve, to help those who are righteous, but to bring sinners to repentance. And if we, as His people, forget that we are sinners, not just were but present tense are. We forget that our very standing is not built upon our goodness, but upon the righteousness of another. We no longer need to pretend God knows us. And if this is true, then this is true about each one of us, the person sitting in front of us, the person sitting on either side of us. And most definitely the person standing in front of all of you. This is true of all of us. No need to pretend. Secondly, because there is no need to pretend, there is no use, nor is there any need to defend ourselves. Do you notice Joshua is silent throughout this entire vision? He doesn't say anything. He doesn't plead his case. He doesn't offer up any promises of what he will do if God will help him. He never utters a word of self-defense. And if Joshua the high priest can't or won't, how much less ought you and I? There is good advice given long ago that whatever anyone else accuses you of, however wrong or inaccurate they may be, the reality is you are far worse than they ever could really fully know. There is no use to defend ourselves. We stand before a holy God who knows everything about us. Christ stood wrongfully accused. And he said not a word. But here is the heart of the matter. Though we are guilty and have no reason to pretend, no reason to defend ourselves, though we are guilty... We are not condemned because of Jesus. If we are united to Christ by faith, 
We are in him and all that he has and all that is true of him is applied to our account, is credited to us as if we have done it. In him we are forgiven. In him we are cleansed. In him we are washed. We are accepted. The high priest is made fit to serve through the blood of one who is yet to come. And you and I are made fit to serve by the blood of one who has come, who has died, and has risen again. We stand here, or sit here, comfortable before a holy God, confident before a holy God, because of Jesus. In Jesus alone. Glory, glory be to Christ who has paid for all our sin. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how merciful you are to us. How amazing is your grace. Thank you that we come to you confident to stand not because of our own righteousness or what we may have in our hands, but because, because of the blood of your Son, because of his sacrifice, because his righteousness now clothes us. Thank you, O oh God, for your mercy to us in him. It is in the name of our Savior we pray. Amen.